Good morning and welcome. There are notes on the podium. I hope they're not for me. It's okay. It's all right. I just, as long as y'all don't start leaving ugly notes like the time or things like that, we'll be all right. Okay. Hello and welcome. Thanks for being with us. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, if you have your Bible. Um, and we'll get to that in just a moment. I do want to thank you so much for being with us. I know many of you are guests. Some of you are from out of town or here with family. Um, if you are a guest, please do us the favor. I know Adam mentioned it already, of filling out a, a card just to let us know. You can either do that on your bulletin there um, or you can do it online. Also, just one quick reminder, we have a Next Steps class next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. If you're visiting with us for the first time or the fourth time or the 14th time and you got any interest in knowing what it would look like to be a part of Malvern Hill, we would invite you to come. I'll lead that class at 4 o'clock next uh, Sunday afternoon. We'll meet right over uh, in a room right over there. So I would invite you to come and be with us for that class next Sunday. All right. Again, thank you so much for being with us. We're in the book of Acts. If you're not normally with us, we do something a little different. We stand when we read God's Word. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me in honor of God's Word. Beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what he sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God, that the resurrection accomplished much for us. And this morning, as we consider that in your word, I pray that you would open our hearts in our minds to receive all that you have for us from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One really great thing about churches, uh, church buildings, is the way that they're built. So when I say great, I mean that sort of sarcastically. They, they tend to be pieced together. You start with one building, and then over time you build another building, and you build another building. We're going to be building another building before too long. And one of the things that we're trying our best to do is to think long term about where all the buildings can be so that we don't build ourselves into corners. But in churches, you tend to build. So this building was built um, in the 50s. We've got a wing over there that was built. We've got a, a gym area that was built in the uh, 80s. Then this church, this building here was expanded and sort of rebuilt about six years ago. And in the process of all of that, you end up with all sorts of things that get crossed over and people can't figure out all sorts of stuff. Wiring can be very interesting. And so, for instance, when we're trying to do anything around here, by anything I mean like replace uh, an outlet or somebody's trying to fix a light fixture, uh, we can't always easily identify where the, the breaker is. And so generally we'll have somebody here doing some work and there'll be somebody else that's running all over the building and they're screaming, did that one work? And we're just flipping breakers to find out. Every church I've ever attended has had random switches that did not work. Some of y'all got some of those in your house? We have a few of those. I have no idea. They must have served a purpose at some time, but I don't know what. We have a switch uh, in the hallway here that doesn't do anything anymore. It's still there. It's a dummy switch. We keep it there to make y'all look kind of weird. You flip it and you can't figure out what's going on. 
In the church I was at prior to being here, there was a switch in a hallway, and when you flipped the switch, nothing happened. That switch worked the light fixture in sort of this closet classroom that was up another flight of stairs and down a hallway. I have no idea, but somewhere along the way, there was somebody that put that switch in there and thought, it's a really smart idea for us to leave this, this switch right here. I don't know why. As we consider the resurrection this morning, we don't have to worry about whether the cross accomplished its purpose. We flip switches sometimes, and we're not exactly certain what's going to happen when we flip that switch. We don't know if that switch is going to accomplish the purpose that we have for it. Folks, when we consider the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection proves to us that the cross accomplished its purpose. The cross did everything that Jesus intended for it to accomplish. How do we know? Because Jesus rose from the grave. Not only does the cross accomplish many things, but the resurrection accomplishes much. And this morning, even though we're not preaching from a a traditional Easter service, or excuse me, text, what we're going to see is that in this passage of Scripture, it shows us that the resurrection accomplished much. And that's the reason that we gather together. The first thing we see this morning is that the resurrection established a new community. The resurrection of Jesus established a new community. Verse 32, now the full number of those who had believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. We don't have this first century picture of communism or something. This isn't socialism. This is just a family that's come together, and this new community has been established. Now, Jesus promised the building of this new community. If you know anything about the Bible, you might have read in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, where Jesus looked at Peter and said, Behold, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There we have a promise from Jesus that he is going to build a church and that that church is going to be purposeful. What is this new community, this church? The Greek word there is a word, ekklesia. Okay? Now, I know y'all like it when I use big Greek words, but the most, some of y'all need to smile. It's Easter. (laughs) The most basic definition for this word, ekklesia, is the called out. Right, But a broader understanding or definition of that word is, is this. Ecclesia in the Greek meant a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public space, space, sort of an assembly. It was often used for a civic organization or even for a governmental body that would be called out together. It was, it was a place where people were called for a council or for the purpose of deliberating. When we think about what a church is, the Bible uses that word on purpose, that word ecclesia, to help us to understand that that which Jesus promised to build was not just a thing, it was a specific thing. A church is something specific. It's not a place, but it is a people, a people who agree to meet together for particular purposes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what a church is. It's a specific body, a group. Now, it's important that we remember that we have a church building, but the building is not a church. The church, instead, is the people of God that have covenanted together to meet with one another. The resurrection of Jesus actually brought about the building of a church. This establishment of a brand new community. We get excited about an empty tomb as we should. But folks, we miss the boat to some degree if we don't recognize that Jesus died for a purpose. And one of those purposes that Jesus died for was to establish his church. 
Jesus didn't just die so that we could all get new clothes for Easter. He didn't just rise from the dead so that we could get together with our families and have a good meal. Jesus rose from the grave, and one of the primary purposes for that resurrection was to establish a brand new sort of community. Now, a church might do a few other things, but a church must do three things. Okay, A church must preach the Word of God in, in, in a gathering. So they must gather for worship where the Word is preached. They must practice baptism, and a church must administer the Lord's Supper. Those are three things, okay? Look, don't, don't tone out on me yet. Some of you are like, I came for an Easter sermon. What's happening? We're going to get there, right? These things matter because the resurrection accomplished a whole lot. These are the things a church does, but more than what a church does is what or who a church is. Churches have a personality. They're supposed to because they are a community. A church is, is a, a family. But folks, a church is supposed to be like a healthy family. Not one of those messed up ones that so many of you can, can understand. Many of us know what it's like to have that, right? Some of you know and you're like, I don't want any part of the family that you're talking about. My family's messed up. Listen, the church is God's effort through the resurrection of Jesus, to establish a community that is bonded together through Jesus. It is a real, healthy, tangible family. It's a covenant community, and it's this idea of covenant community, this picture here in Acts chapter 4. The resurrection of Jesus created this community where people were of one heart and one soul. Now, does this mean that they always got along? No. Right? Does this mean they were all sort of robots and they all look the same? No. This means that they're this healthy family. What does a healthy family do? They've agreed to love each other in spite of the fact that sometimes they want to strangle each other. Right? Some of y'all that didn't get to come from healthy families get this messed up idea of what a healthy family looks like. Listen to me. I need y'all to hear this. Healthy families are not made up of people who always get along all the time. Healthy families are not made up of people who always agree about everything all the time. Healthy families are made up of people who have decided that no matter what, they're still going to be a healthy family on the other side of whatever they're dealing with. That's what a healthy family is. I, I do uh, some marriage seminars occasionally. Angela and I do them together sometimes. And she loves to talk in front of people. She actually hates to be in front of people. So um, we don't do many of them. Um, but... Uh, it's great when we can have a, a group with like 30 or 40 couples in there, right? A lot of people from a variety of ages. And so sometimes you'll have, you'll have several couples and you'll have somebody that just got married like last week. Or they're engaged, right? And they're in there and they're all like, please help us to be the perfect couple. And we're like, we're going to help you. And they're like, oh, I think he's wonderful. And he's like, she's the best thing ever. And then there's that couple that's 75 years old and they've been married for 50 years. And they're just laughing. And, I'm like, and, and, and so we, we always have it. And then you have the couple that's been married. that they're, they're raising teenagers. And they're like, look, we're doing all we can do to make sure we live in the same house together right now. But I love to have those folks that have been married for 50 years. And, and, and I, I love to ask this question. Hey, you made it 50 years. That's incredible. Were they all good years? They must have been perfect for y'all to have made it this long. And to watch them laugh, literally, out loud. And you got those like just married couples, and they're looking at them like, what is wrong? Why is their marriage broken? 
and say, can, can you tell us about how, how it was? You know, that, that, and, and they'll sometimes open up. You know, that, there was that year when, when she battled depression, and we weren't sure we were going to make it through, but we had decided that we were going to be married. So we just suffered together. That was that year that he lost his job, and everything was bad. But we decided that we were going to make it through. Or there was that year or two years when he's in a really bad job. And he kept bringing everything home and taking it out on me. Well, how did you survive? Well, because there was something that held us more than just that bad moment. How did you get through the disagreements? Because we had decided that we were married. Folks, that's what healthy families do. They find a way to get through the ugly stuff because there's something bigger that holds them together. When the Bible describes the church in Acts chapter 4 and it says they were all of one heart and mind, it doesn't mean that they always agreed. They might not have agreed about the best thing to eat or the best person to vote for. They might have had different opinions about what the best way for them to engage and experience entertainment and the culture around them was. They may have disagreed about 187 things, but they had agreed upon this, that Jesus Christ was Lord of all and that he was enough to keep them together. That's what the resurrection of Jesus created, something new and different and distinct. A new community where people were united, not with, not with the blood of their ancestors, but through the blood of Christ. And he was the glue that held them together. The resurrection of Jesus brought that about. We gather today celebrating the resurrection, but when we do, we gather as a church. And as we do, it's a good opportunity for us to be reminded that the church is not the creation of some man or woman somewhere. The church is a creation of Jesus. And when the Bible talks about the church, 90, like 92% of the time when this word ecclesia is used in the New Testament... It's in reference to a local gathering of believers. The local body, right? So as we gather as Malvern Hill Baptist Church, we are the expression of God's church, God's kingdom on earth. And this is not because Craig Thompson said about to create this. It's because Jesus created this 2,000 years ago. And when we gather, we do so counterculturally. Gathering and choosing to put Christ as the priority and gathering with the body of Christ as a priority and praying that through that, God unites us with one heart and mind and soul. That's the community that was created through the resurrection. This is why the church matters. This is why regularly gathering with the church matters. This is why two or three people gathered together at a campground is not the same thing as the church. This is why two or three people gathered together on a boat is not the same thing as the church. The church is a specific, particular group of people who've covenanted together. Right? So God created that through Jesus, through the resurrection. The resurrection established a new community. The number two, the resurrection initiated powerful preaching. And some of y'all are going, really? I was praying for that, but we ain't seen it yet. We're trying, we're trying. As we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit of God moved and as the mission of God was accomplished in the book of Acts, it is accomplished, it is completed through the preaching of God's Word. 
over and over and over again, there is this proclamation of the word of God. And it's not only happening through the apostles, it's happening for everybody. Matthew 28, the Great Commission is being fulfilled in the book of Acts. As they go, they're going, proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repeatedly throughout the history of the church, people have sought to downplay the importance of preaching. The last 150 years of the church in particular have been filled with those who proclaim the death of preaching. And ever since we've seen the rise of the internet age as we've seen it now, there have been many who said there's no need for the preaching. Everybody can just jump online and they can find their own little video and do whatever they want to do. There's a problem. The problem is that the church has been preaching since the church has existed. Preaching is in the very DNA of the church. There is no church where the word of God is not preached. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that there is not a church that may be gathered somewhere that, 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 that isn't preaching. What I mean is if the word is not regularly preached, it may be a gathering, but it is not a church. If the word of God is not regularly preached, it may be something, but it is not a church of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Preaching is a specific act. One definition I came across this week says preaching is God speaking in the power of His Spirit about His Son from His Word through a man. How in the world can I, can I stand before you and claim such authority? Because it's not my words. i got to preach this or I've got nothing to offer. The authority in preaching doesn't come from the man proclaiming the Word. The authority in preaching rests only in this Word and nothing else. The minute that Craig Thompson strays from this word, Craig Thompson ceases to be a Christian preacher and becomes something else. That's true for everybody. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, Matthew says this about Jesus. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Much can be said about Jesus. But more than anything else, we must acknowledge this. Jesus was a preacher and a teacher, and Jesus came preaching. After his resurrection and ascension, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And the first public act of the Holy Spirit among the church was what? Peter's preaching of the Word of God on the day of Pentecost. The Word of God literally established and birthed the church of Jesus Christ at Pentecost. Do you understand that? The preaching of the Word birthed the church. The resurrection initiated powerful preaching. We gather on Sunday mornings to worship and to experience the preaching of the Word of God. Why? Listen, because that's what Christians do and have done for all of Christian history. We gather on Sunday mornings to, 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 to regularly and repeatedly celebrate Easter all throughout the year. That's why we worship on Sundays. I mentioned that in our sunrise service this morning. Why do we worship on Sundays if the Old Testament saints worshiped on Saturdays? We worship on Sundays because Jesus walked out of the tomb on a Sunday morning. And every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, we honor Christ by revering His Word. We grow in Christ by sitting under the preaching of His Word. And we experience all of this because the tomb is empty. Jesus rose from the grave. And Jesus began to preach immediately. And his disciples 
after his ascension, began immediately to preach. And what did they preach? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we read right here in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and then 33. He says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Right in the middle of this, it's sort of this weird insertion. He's talking about the community, the community, the community, and then boom, stuck right in the middle is this sentence about the preaching. Why? I believe it's because Luke, the author of the book of Acts, wanted us to understand that the community was created through the preaching of the word of God. That the community was created through the preaching of the word of God. As the people preached the word of God, then, then what happened? People were saved. People were changed. The resurrection initiated powerful preaching. Finally this morning, the resurrection dynamically changed lives. The Bible says in verse, verse 30, uh, four, there was not a needy person among them. Why was there not a needy person among them? Was it because of the incredible outpouring of Roman government support? Was there like this first century COVID relief check? No, there wasn't. Folks, the resurrection of Jesus dynamically changed people. The resurrection of Jesus dynamically changed people. We emphasize salvation as we should. So hear me say that. We emphasize salvation. But I want you to understand this. When God steps into your life, he makes a big difference. When Jesus changes you, something happens. When you meet Jesus, he changes everything. Everything. If your relationship with Jesus hasn't changed anything, you need to ask yourself if you have a relationship with Jesus. You see, in the first century when people met Christ, everything got a little weird. Everything got a little crazy. The things that had motivated them before may not have motivated them afterward. They started doing wild stuff. They started being concerned for the needs of people that they didn't even know before. They started being really concerned. Concerned enough to meet the physical needs. It goes so far as to tell us that there were people who were coming and they were selling property so that they could raise money and they could give that money away to the people who had needs around them. I, I want you to understand, it's not as though in the first century people felt differently about their property and so they acted differently. No, it's still the same. The same materialist nature that lives within us lived within them. And yet, Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, transformed them so dynamically that they were willing to give their own resources away so that others wouldn't suffer. The early believers didn't just attend church. They attended church at great risk. Do you understand that? There's very little risk that anybody's going to do anything to us because we gathered to worship Jesus this morning. The early church attended worship at great risk. But not only did they attend at great risk, once they got there, they began to love others at great cost to themselves. This is what a resurrection community looks like. A community filled with people who have been changed and challenged by the love of Jesus Christ. Have you been changed? Has there been a, a change in your life, a shift? Can you look back to a point when you met Christ? This morning in our sunrise service, many of you were there, many of you weren't. 
had a conversation just about what would that guard at the tomb have thought? Right? Your job is to make sure that nobody comes to mess with this dead body, and instead the dead body walked out of the tomb. Everything got a little bit messed up. Folks, the resurrection changed that man's life. You understand that? The resurrection of Jesus changed that man's life. When he saw Jesus walk out of the grave, he was never the same again. Too many of us haven't experienced life change because we've not actually experienced Christ. The resurrection established a new community. The resurrection initiated powerful preaching. The resurrection dynamically changed lives. And in conclusion this morning, I want you to know the resurrection offers you restoration today. The resurrection offers you restoration today. See, up to this point, we've sort of been engaged in sort of an academic exercise, if we're just kind of honest. I walked you through the text. I've tried to explain and, and sort of expound upon this text, fatten it up a little bit to give us a little bit deeper understanding. But when it's all said and done, the real question is whether or not we've actually experienced this Jesus. You understand? The real question is not what I think. The real question is whether or not I met him. Did I meet him? Did something shift in my life? Some of you probably by now have seen the little clip of Alistair Begg that's made its way around the internet many times now. Alistair Begg is one of my favorite preachers. He is Angela's favorite preacher. I have sort of a complex about that, but I've learned to be okay with it. He's, he's small, so I know I can take him, so I try not to be too bothered. But he has that Scottish accent, and that is just difficult for me to overcome. But Alistair Begg, in this sermon clip that maybe you've seen, talks about the experience of the thief on the cross making his way to the gates of heaven. And he says, I don't know who's in charge there at the gates of heaven, but maybe there's an angel that's got a list, and this guy walks up, and they said, do you know, do you know Jesus? He says, I don't know. He says, well, why are you here? He said, I'm not sure. Well, how did you get here? He says, I have no idea. Well, wait a minute, did you, have, you, have you had a, a change in your life? He said, no, no, I just died. I don't know anything. And the guy says, hold on, let me go get somebody else. And he brings somebody else over there and he says, listen, can you explain to us what you understand about salvation? Can you, can you give us a doctrine of salvation and how it, how it worked? He says, I don't know what that means. He said, how did Jesus change your life? He said, I'm not sure who that is. He says, why are you here? What have you done? He said, I didn't do anything, but the man on the middle cross said I could come. He said I could come. Folks, when we ask a question about whether or not the resurrection has changed your life, sometimes we get it so mixed up. We think about Christianity and we ask the question of what have I done? But the question is never what have you done? The question is always what did he do? And folks, what he has done is everything that you needed. To be forgiven and set free. To be restored. I use that word restored on purpose. Because Jesus came to change your life. But the change that he came to bring about was to restore you to your intended, created purpose. We run our way all the way back to the book of Genesis and the way that God created us in perfect relationship with him and with others in harmony with God and man. And when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the chains of death, hell, sin, and the grave that held us. And when he walked out of the grave, he proved to us that he'd accomplished everything he came to do. 
You see, the problem is that we are scarred by our sin. We are impacted and affected by our sin. We are messed up by our sin. That's what our sin has done. Jesus came to take away our sin and to restore us to our intended purpose. See, when it's all said and done, if you got up and got dressed for Easter, and if you're going to eat deviled eggs this, this afternoon for lunch, if you dyed eggs with your kids, and if you got new clothes, none of it really matters unless you've actually experienced the resurrection in your own life. You see, when it's all said and done, Easter is about this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is about this. Christ came to save sinners. See, the resurrection of Jesus is this. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But Jesus Christ took the penalty of sin that was ours. See, the wages of sin is death, right? But Jesus died in our place, and he died in your place. Just last Sunday, a man heard that message at this church, and he gave his life to Christ. And today, I want you to know that if you're here, you're here on purpose because God brought you here. You're here because God had an intention for you to be here. This may be your first Sunday at Malvern Hill, but it's the Sunday that God intended for you to hear this message. Jesus died and rose from the grave to save you from your sin. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you are terribly uncomfortable in church today. That's some of you, I know. You're like, eh. It doesn't matter. Here's what matters. Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, came down from heaven and lived 33 years of sinless perfection. He died on a cross to take your sin and mine. And three days later, he walked out of the tomb to show that he accomplished everything he came to accomplish. And what did he come to accomplish? He came to save you from your sins. In just a couple of minutes, Pastor Kevin's going to come and we're going to sing. And when we do, I want to invite you to come forward this morning. And I want to invite you to come forward on this Easter Sunday to experience the resurrection of Jesus in your own life. You see, I told you this morning that Jesus came to establish a new community. He came and he brought powerful preaching. He came to change lives. But I also want you to hear me. He's offering all of that to you today. It's so easy for us to hear a sermon and go, man, that's so great for everybody else. But God didn't bring you here so that you could watch everybody else hear a sermon. God brought you here so that you could hear this message. Do you understand that? God loved you and brought you here. As Christians, we celebrate Easter every single Sunday. The hope of Easter, forgiveness, change, restoration, it's all available for you today. If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never experienced salvation, today can be the first Easter in your life. The first experience of the resurrection. As we stand and as we sing, would you come today? It's okay if you don't really understand all of it. I'd love to send somebody to talk with you and explain what salvation in Jesus Christ looks like. It's okay if you think you're too far gone. You're not. It's okay if you're only here because your wife told you you had to come. 
and God's at work in your life anyway. It's okay if you're only here to make your mama happy. See, God is not worried about what got you here or where you've been. But I'm going to tell you this. He can take you places that you've never dreamed. He can give you hope. He can give you forgiveness. He can give you peace of mind and heart. He can give you life eternally. Man, that guard at the tomb. Imagine. He said, wait a minute. Why are you walking out? There's somebody in your life that's never going to believe that you could walk out of the grave you're living in right now. Some of you don't believe that you can walk out of the grave that you're living in right now. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus specializes in hard cases. And if he can move a rock and walk out of a grave, you are not a hard case for him. He died for you. Are there going to be people that stand back and go, man, I can't believe that that guy walked out. There are. And you know what you're going to say? I didn't walk. He toted me. He saved me. You're going to be able to tell them how the light shone brightly in your darkest place. How the light of the gospel shines for them as well. This morning as we sing about walking out of that grave. As we sing about that this morning. Would you step out of your grave this morning? Walk out of the grave cloths. Experience the glorious day that Jesus offers to you. Stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would be at work among us, Lord God. I pray, Father God, that as we sing, that the words, the weak words, Lord God, even of this pastor, Lord, would would be overwhelmed by the powerful words of your gospel. That you loved us and you lived for us and you died so that we might have life, God. If there's somebody here today living in the darkness of their grave, today, Lord God, would you call them out? Lord God, would they experience hope and find salvation in Jesus Christ? In Christ's name we pray, amen.